0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Leonard Marcus, director of the Program for Healthcare Negotiation and Conflict Resolution and co-director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. This call was recorded at 1130 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, April 10th.
1: Nice to meet all of you and thank you for the work you're doing. Um, we, We really depend, we as a country depend on um, your uh, efforts to provide public information and accurate public information uh, to people who are at home and trying to figure out what's going on. So thank you, and if, if I can be of help to you in that effort, it's, it's a pleasure uh, to be with you. Um, so I co-direct the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Um, uh, the federal government came to Harvard shortly after 9-11, uh, David Gergen, who's at the Center Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School, and me, and asked whether Har- Harvard would invest its efforts in leadership uh, for homeland security preparedness and response. Um, we said yes, and uh, one of the unique uh, one of the unique activities that we engage with is that we embed as best as possible with leaders of responses, and have been doing so over the years. So way back when in Hurricane Katrina. Uh, uh, embedded with Mike Brown. You might remember, uh, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job, uh, was there when he was leading, when he was relieved of duties by uh, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, and have since then um, been alongside with uh, Admiral Thad Allen during the Gulf oil spill, with Dr. Rich Besser at the CDC during H1N1, uh, and have done so with Secret Service through crises, uh, Transportation Security Administration, um, FEMA, uh, and, and other agencies. And our goal is to learn and understand what crisis leaders are experiencing in a time like this. We then teach um, that as part of our NPLI curriculum. So well over a thousand people have been through that curriculum. They're in senior positions leading throughout the country um, at the federal, state and local level in corporations and humanitarian organizations. And we stay in touch with those people. They call upon us. We meet with them every week, uh, those that are able to get off uh, for a call with with us. And so we're continuing uh, to study uh, what's going on. Uh, The the situation right now in this country is that we're in a race. And the race is uh, the numbers of cases are going up. Um, And are we going to be able to get hospitals, uh, our healthcare system, our testing, our capacity to deal with the large numbers of deaths, are we able to create the system so that it meets just uh, in the nick of time. So are we able to get ventilators to hospitals so that when a clinician takes that last ventilator off, a new ventilator will be put on the shelf uh, so that we don't get into a situation where clinicians have to make a choice of who's going to get the ventilator. Uh, We're in a race with personal protective equipment, uh, and with masks. And we're having varying success uh, with, that, with that race. In part, the public distancing um, has certainly flattened the curve to some extent. We don't know exactly how much, but we, we hear Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks at the White House saying that we were expecting 100 to 200,000 deaths. Uh, it might be lowered to 60,000 deaths because of um, the, the population's adherence to uh, physical distancing. So the race is to try and, as best as possible, reduce the demand um, on our healthcare care systems, uh, on our testing systems, to up the capacity to respond. Um, whether or not we win the race, we'll only know uh, in time as we look at back at where we're at right now. But that's the way um, when we're talking to leaders, it's, it's a way of understanding where we're at right now. And we hope that um, we'll win the race. You know, one thing that I think it, it is happening uh, across the country is uh, people are more and more willing uh, to make supplies uh, available, more willing to share ventilators. That's going to be one aspect of solving this problem if an area is past their peak Um, and they don't require all the ventilators that they have on their shelves, that they're willing to share uh, with other areas that are just approaching their peak and that we've got capacities and systems in place to move around um, those vital resources as the country uh, uh, experiences this pandemic. Uh, Different different cities and different states are hitting their peaks at different times. So if if we're real nimble and flexible as a country, Hopefully, we'll be able to meet the needs uh, in these different areas as the peaks uh, do uh, reach, as we do reach these peaks. So, that's a very brief overview. Happy to to take any questions. Um, My area is mostly uh, leadership and people and population and preparedness. I can't answer your questions about the virology or the epidemiology. There are other people at our school who are doing a marvelous job in studying and then reporting and providing information on that. So happy to take any questions that are appropriately in my wheelhouse.
2: All right. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Uh, It looks like we have our first question. Good
0: morning. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about which states are doing well during this. It seems like California, for instance, has had fewer cases than, than other places? And and kind of what you think about about what they're doing and why, why it's going better? Is it just luck or are they doing something better there?
1: Um, we always say it's always a combination of smarts and luck. Um, and one of the th- things that they've done, they were pretty early on in encouraging physical distancing. Um, so they've got a, a lot of good um, uh, cooperation from the population. We don't know uh, yet exactly the impacts. We're getting impressions, but certainly the impression in California is, um, first, they were very quick to prepare um, and get their hospitals and um, other institutions in place and ready to go. They were very strict about their physical distancing. That message got out and people were willing to comply. Um, So they're certainly um, ahead of the curve in terms of flattening Uh, Washington State, they had the first cases uh, in the United States, so they got some early experience. What that did um, is uh, those early cases created enormous community spread, so they had the first uh, series of deaths, but it got them very serious, and so they seem to be emerging on the other side uh, of their peak uh, to the extent that they're willing to uh, share some ventilators and other equipment with other other states that are... um, Uh, uh, not, you know, that is still pre uh, getting to their peak. So um, obviously, we all know the hotspots are uh, in in, in New York area, Uh, Washington, Detroit, Louisiana are are emerging hotspots. And, you know, the one hotspot, I think that is a great concern, which of course, is all over the country are the rural hotspots. So um, we're hearing, uh, you know, we're hearing reports of uh, significant numbers of uh, uh, people with a disease in food processing plants in rural areas. Uh, they don't have the same capacity um, uh, as the urban areas in terms of their healthcare systems. We know that healthcare systems have suffered um, over the last few years in rural areas. So, those are places where we can have concern because, as difficult as is the experience in New York, they have the infrastructure, the public health infrastructure, the healthcare system infrastructure, and the capacity to absorb the help that they're receiving. Uh, It's going to be a different story when we're looking at some of these rural areas, and time, of course, is going to tell how well prepared they are and what the impact will be in those states.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Okay, next question.
1: Hi, thanks very much. Um,
0: I just actually kind of wanted to follow up on what you were talking about. Um, I'm, I'm interested more in areas outside of big cities, like smaller towns and rural areas. And I know, you know, there are certain things that you can't control in the short run that affect what kind of impact the pandemic might have there. You were talking about maybe there was a hospital closure. Um, you know, there's demographics like age and underlying health issues. Um, but what are like in terms of what people at the local level, like particularly local leaders, can like what are some of the things that they do that maybe work or maybe make things worse during crises? Like what will set a community that handles w- this well apart from other communities?
1: Um, first off, um, I'm, I'm thinking right now of Georgia, um, where there hasn't been a consistent message coming from the state government. And there's stories coming out of Georgia where there's um, food processing plants, uh, there's a story in the New York Times, food processing plants I've heard also um, um, from within this leadership network of um, food processing out in Iowa, where they have continued to remain in business. Uh, People have shown up to work um, who have contracted the disease. They spread the disease um, throughout the company. Um, I know that there have been efforts to uh, provide support from the federal level to those states and to those companies. Um, But as we've seen, some of these states, uh, Georgia, as an example, Iowa, the Dakotas, Where there is a lot of um, uh, food processing uh, that's being done. I think the the question is whether, you know, what why those states didn't get on board with the physical distancing, the stay-at-home orders for for non-essential people. Um, That just didn't happen in, in a number of those states, so that the population was not adhering to physical distancing as we saw in California or Washington state, some of the earlier states. And now um, the disease is running rampant. Uh, We see in some smaller communities, Columbus, Georgia is an example. So they're gonna have to be playing catch up. I think one of the questions, and we don't have an answer to this question, is one of the questions will be, what will be the impact on the food supply um, because our food supply goes to urban areas, but it comes from rural areas. And if those rural areas were not as careful about the physical distancing, um, were not as quick um, uh, in jumping into areas where there were, uh, where there were cases, uh, what, what's that going to mean first for those local areas and being able to cope with that? And second, what's that going to mean nationally in terms of, of the food chain? We still don't know the answer, but those issues are beginning to rise now in the fourth week since the national it's been only four weeks since um, the national emergency was declared so now at this point this is what we're what we're beginning to see
0: but so like let's say you're a, a mayor county commissioner um, in a state like Georgia or Iowa or one of the Dakotas where there hasn't been statewide policy or um, what are like what are some things you can do at that level? I mean, or, or can you really make a difference? And it's kind of like too big at that point.
1: No, it, well, you're, it's a good question. First off, they are jurisdictional issues. So what can a mayor do in terms of uh, orders for stay at home? What is a mayor allowed to do in terms of closing businesses down? That's a tremendous power. And we give elected officials those powers and it varies from state to state. So uh, governors have some of those powers, mayors, county commissioners have some of those powers and presidents uh have powers so um um, in a number of states that have been very slow to enact physical distancing mayors have stepped up to the plate and did everything they could to encourage that physical distancing in their communities ideally um uh, in retrospect i think what we will say is that it would have been better that we had an overall national strategy. So everyone was doing the same thing, in part because people travel from state to state. So if one state or one area has been very careful, but people are coming in from areas that were not as careful or coming in from areas where the disease is already much further along, then whatever you're doing in the local is undermined by the movement of people. So um, a uniform approach uh, in, in the end, probably would have done us a lot better um, as a country. And those places, apparently, uh, uh, in particular, those rural areas that were slow to get on board are the ones that we're now beginning to see um, are where cases are are running rampant, and the local communities don't have all the infrastructure to cope with those cases. Thanks very much.
0: Uh, looks like next question. So
2: you know the. President Trump and the administration have sort of now been talking about some parts of the country are going to be able to open up by May 1st at, you know, the rate that we're going right now with, you know, trying to ramp up testing. Do you think that we're going to be able to, that the U.S. is going to be able to expand their testing capacity enough that parts of the country can get open by early May?
1: That's a good question. And and the answer, of course, is we don't know. So the most honest answer is um, we we don't know yet exactly what the right steps are in opening up. Um, And we can learn a lot from other places. I mean, Hong Kong has experience with this, Singapore. So what's working there? um, People are talking about not opening up completely. You you don't say, this county is open. that it's not necessarily gonna be by geography, that it could be by, uh, for example, we'll have a lot of people who've developed immunity. So those people can engage in activities, especially in healthcare. Um, If we're talking about restaurants, perhaps restaurants have to open up with a different set of rules. You only have 50% of your capacity so that you're able to open, but we're doing it differently because we create social distancing. Airlines might be able to open eventually, but they're not going to be able to go at full capacity. And the question to the airlines, would you rather fly with 50% or no percent? And we're going to imagine that a number of businesses will open, but not open like we were four weeks ago, but open in very um, measured ways uh, with specific populations. We might, for example, open, but keep the stay in place, uh, stay at home. Uh, order for people who have healthcare vulnerabilities, maybe for the older generation. Um, so I think we're going to have to be smart about it, not to sim- simply say, "Well, this set of counties just you're you know you're back to where you were," but rather, how do we very very smartly and very gradually, uh, understanding the data that's coming out of our experience here in the United States, as well as the data and the experience that's coming out from other places. I think one of the lessons. Uh, of this whole experience has been, um, everything that we're experiencing here in the United States has similarities to what we're experiencing in China. And we could have done a better job at looking at people who are ahead of us on this curve, seeing what they did, what worked, and what didn't work, and then we ought to embed those lessons in the decisions that we make and where they made mistakes. Let's not repeat those mistakes. And so we're right now in that learning curve And that will inform when we open, how we open, but hopefully we'll do it in a really smart way, in a very calculated way, rather than just opening the doors. Because if we just do that, we're gonna open the doors and then soon we're gonna get back to where we've been before, where we have the spread of the disease. We gotta be really smart when we start opening those doors. I know that there are groups that are meeting and that are beginning to work on that, asking some of the really tough questions and coming up with creative strategies. Uh, for how to reopen society, once the numbers of cases start coming down.
2: But do we, I know a lot of the talk has been about, you know, testing, right? Do we have that capacity right now to even get to the level where we can think about opening and, you know, start looking at what happened abroad? Or do we even, do we have to do more and just keep, you know, expanding testing, expanding testing, expanding testing?
1: Well, you know as well as I do, whether we have the capacity now depends on who you ask. So we, we, we don't really fully know what the capacity is. Um, I do believe that if we look at the experience in, in, in South Korea, you know, one of the strategies that they employed was very widespread testing. And that widespread testing helped them discriminate those people who were able to go back to work and were able to re-engage in society And with that, they're also able to keep those people who tested positive out of the mainstream. So it was an opportunity for them in a very, very staged, very carefully, very calculated way of discriminating between those people who are carrying the disease and those who are not. And that is the advantage that comes in being able to build that testing capacity and not only the numbers of people, but the ease of testing. So that we're now finding these very uh, quick Uh, testing uh, capabilities, that too, from a calculated perspective, is going to help us reopen smartly.
0: All right, Uh,
2: is there another question? If so, please raise your hand.
1: Well, I'm gonna, if you don't have a question, I know that it's not supposed to be this way, but the question, I actually have a question for you and I don't know if anybody would be willing to answer this and maybe it'll spark some more questions. Um, uh, It seems that this is a very difficult story to cover and um, As I've been watching the media, um, it's not a straightforward story. It's an evolving story. There are a lot of unknowns. And just, you know, from my perspective, as we're studying leaders, as we're studying and trying to understand what the media is doing, one of the questions for us is how difficult uh, this story is, because um, it's very difficult to figure what's true and what's not true. Uh, it's very difficult to see what are the trends that are going on. And uh, it does it does appear that for every one of us, including myself, uh, we're not only trying to understand uh, this uh, experience, but we're also living through it, uh, which means that our families are living through it, um, our friends are living through it. And so you're covering a story and you're also in the middle of the story. And nobody has to answer that question. But just so you know that those of us that are trying to understand this bigger picture Recognize that this has put a tremendous stress on you and what you're doing every day as well, and probably a story to be told when this is all over.
2: All right. Well, if there are no other comments or questions, I guess we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. And uh, do you have any other final words before we end the call?
1: Well, um, um, the question that I posed to you is one that that we're thinking about. And um, one of the things that we encourage people as they're trying to make their way, because we all have to cope with this, that when it's all done, we're gonna look back and ask ourselves the question, how did we do? And um, hopefully we'll be able to look back and say, we're proud of what we did. Those are very, very difficult circumstances, but in in looking back, uh, we did ourselves proud. Um, And it's hard as we're going forward into this to figure out, well, what does that mean? But one of the things I do for myself and one of the things I encourage our students to do is to do something today um, for which you'll be proud. Do something professionally that you say, well, that was a good thing to do and I'm, I'm proud that we were able to do that and do something personally that makes you feel like, well, I may, it was a tough time, but I made it through it well. Personally, um, I try and reach out to a friend who hasn't been in touch or I haven't been in touch with them for some time. And it's a sort of lift somebody's spirits. So think about, even as you're doing your reporting, you know, when you look back, um, knowing that this is probably gonna be one of the most difficult and perplexing uh, periods of your career, will you be able to look back and be proud uh, of the reporting that you've done and the work that you've done? And what does it require in order to, to, to meet that standard? It's a different standard than what any of us have done Uh, in other times. So what's the standard that you're setting for yourself? Is it a standard that you feel serves uh, the people that are looking to you uh, for information that reflects well on your values as a journalist? Uh, And then uh, we will uh, look back uh, on this uh, collectively. uh, uh, Journalism, we'll look back on how well we covered a really, really difficult story, just as we in academia Uh, the people at the front lines of emergency management uh, and and people in the community will look back on this and say, did we do ourselves proud? Did our country uh, do itself proud through this? Because our ultimate resilience uh, as a country and our ultimate resilience um, as as an organization or as a profession uh, will depend on whether we think we did well through it. So uh, that best investment in the ultimate resilience comes in doing ourselves proud. As we're going through this. So, so once again, thank you for what you're doing. And um, through Nicole, if I can be helpful to you uh, going forward in your reporting, happy, uh, happy to be of assistance.
0: This concludes the April tenth press conference.